So, so far, uh, if you haven't been with us, we've uh, been in this series for two weeks. The first week, we talked about this idea of attraction. What should we really be looking for uh, in a mate? And then the last week, we were talking about dating. And uh, this week, we actually get to see this couple get married at the end of chapter 3, but before they actually get married, and then, by the way, the following week, starting next week, it's all going to be about their their marriage and the issues that come up uh, in marriage. Uh, But until then, we're going to have them looking back on their what's called courtship. Now, uh, I'm wondering if you don't mind, since you just said hi to somebody, would you turn uh, to the person you might be sitting with? If there's nobody by you, just think about this. But when I say the word courtship, honestly, what comes to your mind? Share that with your neighbor there. Anybody brave enough to share? Bunch of chickens, huh? All right. Well, the first thing I thought about was, what's that? Knowledge. Okay. I thought about antiquated. I thought about Shakespeare. Uh, I thought about, this is so outdated. And the truth is, this idea of courtship really is kind of antiquated. It comes from a long history. The idea was a guy, when he was interested in dating a girl, he would go to the dad and ask permission to go on a date. You remember how we defined a date last week? It's just an event for mutual observation and edification. He would ask the the dad if that would be possible. They would go out together, and the dad would send a chaperone. Now, the idea today that a guy would go ask permission to take somebody out on a date, let alone send a chaperone along with them, is laughable, isn't it? And rather than courting publicly, you see this couple, they would go out in public, and the chaperone would be there and all that. Now, today, in this institution called dating, privacy is what people are seeking. They want privacy. They want to get away from their parents. They want to get away from the world, right? And I've been asking the question these last three weeks, is that the best way to do it? We've been asking this question as a series. Are we going to follow God's word or the world as guidance when it comes to love and relationships. Let's see where following that example has led us. If you look at the statistics, you know that the divorce rate, among Christians even, is just as high as the world. Statistics for teenagers are very sobering right now. You've probably seen them. More and more teens are losing their purity, and they are being hurt by this institution last week we talked about called dating. And so I'm just suggesting maybe it's time for us to reconsider this idea of courtship and whether it still has any merit. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we need to bring this into the 21st century. There's going to be changes to it. But what I want to talk about is really the heart of courtship. To think in terms, if you're a parent or you're, you're single at that stage in your life and you're still looking to possibly uh, you know, meet someone and connect with someone, start thinking in terms of courtship instead of dating. And what is the main difference? I started to hit on this last week. What's the main difference? Courtship is intentional. Dating today just seems to be, well, I'm going to go from her to her to him to him to her to her to her. Courtship has a purpose to it. It's leading somewhere. Namely, it's asking the question, is this the type of person I could marry? Interesting. I just find it so fascinating. In the book God gave us about love and relationships, this couple doesn't even get married till chapter 3. Why? I think God wants to show us how this works beforehand. And the way it works is this thing called 
courtship. And we're going to see that this morning in this couple. But before we look at the verses, uh, somebody asked me this week, you know, well, how does this actually look? I mean, you've been talking about all this stuff. How would this actually look today? So here's what I'm going to do. Before we get into the verses, let me just say, share my heart about how I think this would look. However, the first thing I say is there's no manual for this. It's not like if you do these six things with your kids, uh, they'll follow these rules and so forth. No, there's got to be some freedom in it. But here's how I think this is intended to look. And this is based on what we've studied so far, right? Number one, a courtship goes back to the first two weeks of this series. The very first week we talked about attraction. And you are asking the question... If you are, you know, in that eight stage of life where you're looking for, for somebody else of the opposite sex, right, you're asking the question, what type of person, what type of person am I looking for? The world defines it in one way, but God has defined it in another way, and you are to be looking for people with certain characteristics and qualities, just like we saw in week one with Solomon and this girl. And if you have found somebody that you are attracted to in that way, you go on what's called a, remember, a date, which is an event for two mature people for what? You remember our definition? For observation and edification. That's it. You're observing, is this the type of person? And if there's not mutual edification going back and forth, then it is not the type of person you should continue to see. Now, dating is where you start seeing that person over and over and over again, right? And does that start to lead to some deeper physical, emotional, and spiritual connections? Absolutely, and so that's why I believe, again, no manual, no rules, but after about four to six dates, I know that's early in today's culture, but after four to six dates, I believe the guy owes it to the girl to let her know what his intentions are in this relationship. You know, we, uh, if, if he has no intentions other than, well, I just want to date, you know, I just like the benefits of dating, then girls, what are you going to do? You don't want to be around that guy anymore, right? You, you break that off. I mean, if that's his intentions with you, why would you want to continue to do that? You know, dating, I love how Dennis Rainey explains this. It's like dating is giving a little bit of a piece of your heart to somebody, right? I mean, isn't that right? That's what I meant last week by entrusting myself to somebody else in a relationship. I give them a little piece of my heart. And if I am doing that to person after person after person after person, when I finally get to the person, you know, God has brought into my life to marry, how much of my heart have I given away by that point? I, I just don't think that's healthy and intentional. So early on, have this conversation. Where is this leading? And if it's supposed to be leading somewhere further, you have what's called the DTR. How many of you have ever heard of the DTR? Defining the relationship conversation, right? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> My buddies and I in college, well, everybody at our school, we went to a school in Santa Barbara. There was a place, a little offside of campus, where you all had the DTR. So if you were, like, taking your girl to this place, you knew it was time for the DTR. And I, I shared with you the first week how Peggy and I met. We initially, you know, started dating our sophomore year in college, but I was still not ready. I was still not mature enough to bear the weight of her trust. And so after about eight months, uh, we broke up, and uh, thankfully, we still remained a part of the same group of friends uh, for the next year and a half and so forth. And we got to our senior year. And I had grown up a little bit, I mean, not totally, but I'd grown up a little bit, and I still was attracted to Peggy because of the characteristics she still had. And so instead of just entering into another nonchalant dating relationship, we had the DTR early on. And I said, listen, I don't want to just play around this time, and I'm sure you don't want to play around either like last time. Uh, that was just pointless. I wasn't ready. You probably weren't ready. But this time, 
I intend to move this towards marriage. Is that your intention as well? And so that's how we started that stage of our relationship. It was a different way for us to look at it. So when you start that DTR talk, the next four to six months are more time for you to observe and edify. And there should be what I would call this easiness in your relationship. You shouldn't be fighting and breaking up, fighting and breaking up, fighting and breaking up. It just should be easy. You should be loving to be together. And if those four to six months show, yes, this is the type of person. I'm learning more and more about who they are, and I'm drawing closer and closer to them. Now, this is going to sound so outdated, but the next step is, guys, you go to her, dad, and you say, sir, I have intentions to marry your daughter, potentially. And I just want to ask your permission to see her repetitively in this way. I promise I will protect her. But no, my intentions are for this. It's moving somewhere. It's not purposeless. And I guarantee you that dad will look at you with tears in his eyes. And he'll say, I've been praying. I've been praying my whole life for a man like that, for a man like you. So that's what you do. And then that's what's called, you know, the the courtship, the evaluation stage. You get around other couples, mature, married, and you have them evaluate you and your relationship. And if you're still ready to move towards marriage, that's when you get engaged. And when you're engaged, you engage in conversations, uh, you know, about conflict and sex and money and, you know, all these things. And that's, you know, what we do here at a church, our church. If you're going to get married, we ask you go through premarital counseling. We're going to talk about all those, you know, different things. And I just got to say, the next question everybody always asks is, is, how soon should we get married? And again, there's no manual. I can't tell you exactly, but I'm going to say this, soon. Because if you've done it this way, there shouldn't be questions anymore. You should both be ready, right? You, you know. If you're still wondering, oh, I'm not quite sure about his or her character, then you better slam on the brakes right there. But if you've done this whole process, you know, why put that off if you know that this is the person God intended for you? In the passage we're going to look at this morning, That's kind of the process we're going to see. Obviously, this is 3,000 years ago. It's going to look a little bit different, but we're leaving off where we we left off last week in chapter 2, verse 7, and they are going to go through this process of courtship. And as they go through it, I'm going to have you write down seven, uh, you know, seven keys to courtship. Uh, so that's where we're headed this morning. Again, that's not a manual. That's just like I've been asked the question, what does this look like today? Roll your eyes if you think that's still antiquated. I just think we need to reevaluate dating. I think we need to reevaluate where that's going, and I think this is a much healthier way uh, to pursue that. So let's pray, and then we'll open up God's word. Father, I pray again, again and again that you would meet us here and you would reveal your heart for us in this area of love and relationships and remind us you've given us this book not as a way to keep us from having fun, as a way to, you know, put more rules and regulations in our lives, but you've truly given us this book as a guideline so that we could experience the healthiest, most vital relationships possible, and that's what you really want. Convince us of that this morning, as only you can in your Holy Spirit's power and grace. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 8, listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. Isn't that how you feel when you're in love? Ain't no mountain high enough, get in my way. Verse 9, 
My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. Now, let me just explain that because that could get you arrested today. (laughs) Remember we talked about Song of Solomon is poetry. And in poetry, there is a place for symbolism. This is suggesting that Solomon cannot get close enough, fast enough to his girl. His desires for her are growing. He's leaping over mountains. He's, he's getting as close as he can possibly get. So can you tell this couple's a little bit excited to see each other again? Remember last week they went on two dates? So they're separate right now, but they can't wait to get back together. And I mentioned I'm going to give you seven things about courtship. Here's the first one. In courtship, desire should grow. Desire should grow. You should actually be looking forward to getting together with that person. Right? That's kind of a no-brainer. Their desire is growing. They can't wait to be together. Here's the second thing. You can write this next to verses 10 through 13. It should be enjoyable. Courtship should be enjoyable. There shouldn't be, as I said, this constant fighting and making up, fighting and making up. If that's the pattern of your relationship early on, it's going to be hard to break free from that once you get married. It's just going to be really hard. I'm not saying God can't help you break free from that, but it's just going to be hard. There should be an enjoyableness when you're together. It should be easy. This man describes their relationship in verses 10 through 13. He says, My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers have already appeared in the land, the time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. What time of year is Solomon comparing their relationship to? Winter, right? Everything's dead. I'm just kidding. Spring. That was, that, was, that was cruel. Spring. They're alive. It's blooming. There's joy. There's enjoyment going on in their relationship. This isn't a couple covered up in guilt, hiding away somewhere in shame, right? This is a couple that is enjoying their relationship. They can't wait to be together and to get married. In verse 14, there's a deepening of trust. He says, Oh, my dove. In the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway. That's an interesting verse here because this woman is pictured as hiding up away in some secret place up in the cleft of a rock, right? And he can't get to her. And I had a hard time understanding this until I read uh, some things. And what some people think is what this is suggesting is that, you know, oftentimes throughout history when men don't have the word of God to guide them and how to treat a woman, what do women do? They flee. They escape. They go into themselves. They hide because they're afraid. They're afraid to be around men who aren't going to treat them with respect and love, you know? And that's where things like abuse and and rape and polygamy have come in, and God opposes those things with hatred. And like this women, I think women have retreated, rightfully so. But this man is there. She's hiding, and he says, let me see your form. Come out. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. I mean, he's saying, I'm not going to hurt you. You're safe with me. You can trust me. And friends, from what we've learned so far in these last two weeks, is he speaking truth right now? Is she safe with this man? Can she trust this man? Absolutely. In verse 15, there's deepening of trust. And write this third thing down about courtship. 
There is a resolve to protect each other. When you're courting someone, there is a resolve to protect each other. Verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards, while our vineyards are in blossom. You see the plural pronoun, us, right? This is something they're doing together. They're making a common commitment to protect what? Their vineyard. And the vineyard, all throughout this book, is a metaphor of their relationship. So they're saying, you know, we want our vineyard to come to its full fruition, our relationship to come to its full fruition. Now, I don't know if many of you are familiar with vineyards. Probably not if you grew up around this area. I grew up in Northern California. Uh, so I'm very familiar with vineyards. And if you're a gardener, you understand this. But you know the way that a grape actually comes to grow on a vine? First of all, a flower buds on the vine. And if that flower uh, is pollinated, it will fall off, it will fall to the ground, and in its place will grow a bud, and that bud will grow into a grape. And so that time of year when those flowers are blooming is vital to the success of the vineyard. And so what can't happen is you can't let little animals come and destroy it, like deer, if some of you had deer come and destroy your gardens. Or you can't let rabbits, you can't let foxes, as we see here, especially in the Middle East, because in the Middle East, those flowers contained nutrition and water. And so these animals were desperate for those things. So what is this couple saying? We can't let the little foxes get into our vineyard. They're saying, we want our relationship to come to full fruition, so we are going to protect it at all costs. We're going to put up fences around our relationship. One scholar feels like the foxes they're talking about, again, are those unchecked passions that are natural and common for humans. You know, when you're attracted to someone, when your desires are growing, there are going to be passions that continue to grow. But they understand if, that rema- if that's unchecked, it won't allow their relationship to come to full fruition, Right? It's going to be like starting their relationship, we talked about this last week, with lighter fluid instead of firewood. And they want to make sure their relationship has a flame that is burning from a good place, from a protected place. Now, if you just think I'm some old, outdated, Bible-thumping guy right now, because I talked about this last week, and I'm talking about it again, here we go. Listen, even secular research is showing the wisdom of God's word here. You know, one of the great myths in our culture right now is that it's a good idea to live together before you actually get married. That's like a good experiment to do, but check it out. I can give you the statistics from even non-Christian research that shows that's just not true. Couples are much more likely to get divorced who live together before marriage than the opposite way. I think sometimes God knows what he's talking about, okay, all the time. And he's saying, protect, protect that vineyard. Protect that vineyard. So this couple's resolved to do that. Now let me just say one thing. How do you do this today? If you're in this stage of your life, how do you do this? Guys, you find your best friend and you tell him, you hold me accountable. Whenever I'm around her, she's just too exciting. I don't trust myself, so you hold me accountable. You ask me every week, every day, if you need to. If I'm being inappropriate with her, you tell the girl, of course, that you're doing that, that, you know, somebody's going to be holding you accountable. Girls, you do the same thing. Ask your friends, one of your friends, to just hold your relationship accountable. I don't know uh, if I would have made it if it weren't for my buddies in college doing this, right? It's just the more you're in love, I mean, the more your passions, it's just natural. 
for your desires to grow. It's real simple, as Tommy Nelson says. This is my, one of my favorite quotes. He says, if your head is made of butter, don't sit near the fire. And then he says, I think that's a verse in Malachi or something, yeah. I mean, you don't, if you're a recovering alcoholic, you don't eat out in a bar. And normal human beings, as we saw last week, normal human beings, their passions are going to grow for someone. It's natural. The question is, what are you going to do with them? And this couple is resolving to protect their relationship. In verse 16, we see the next characteristic of courting. Number four, there is emotional bonding. There is emotional bonding. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. Man, do you just see how safe she feels with him? Would you feel safe with a guy like this? Come out, my little dove. You're beautiful. Your voice is sweet. You have my word. I'm not going to harm you. I mean, let's catch the little foxes before they come in to ruin our vineyard. Can you trust a man like this? She's like, I am his and he is mine. They are getting bonded together emotionally. Someone once said, would you agree that whoever wrote this book knew the heart of a woman? That's how we know it wasn't a man. This is God's word. Because this is how a woman wants to be loved, right? By a man who leads out of respect, care, love, protection, provision, respect, honor, safety. Let's keep going. Next to verse 17, right? Number five there. Passion will grow. If you thought the raisin cake stuff last week was good, that ain't nothing. Here the woman speaks again. And uh, pick new scene. She's in her room. She's daydreaming again about the next time she's going to get to see her man. And she says, until the cool of the day. What time of day is that in Hebrew? That's morning time. Right? Morning time. God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Then she says, when the shadows flee away, when do the shadows flee away? When the sun comes up, right? So literally, this means all night long, all night long, what does she want to do? She says, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bethar. What in the world is she talking about? If you were to take a Bible concordance and look up mountains of Bethar, there are only two recorded instances of it in Scripture, here and in chapter 8 of Song of Solomon. And as far as I know, I just looked it up this week again, just to make sure, there is actually no geographic place called the mountains of Bethar in Israel or anywhere else. The word Bethar in Hebrew means mountains of spices. Can you see where she's going with this yet, or do I need to spell this out with you? Throughout the book, I guess I need to spell it out. The breasts of the woman are referred to as the mountains of spices. The mountains of spices. So what does this mean? What is she saying to him? Turn and be like a young stag on the mountains of spices all night long. I can tell you this verse will never be on the front marquee of a church, right? (laughs) This Sunday. And yet, here we are. Here we are, friends. We move next to chapter 3. 
But there isn't a break here, really, because the woman is still talking about her growing passion and longing to be with her man. She says, on my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. She's dreaming about him. She's got to see him again. Her passions are growing and growing. She goes out to find him in verse 2. I must arise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. Can you hear the anguish in her voice? She's anxious to be with him. And I didn't understand, you know, the anxiety that's going on here. The relationship seems to be going so well. Why is she so anxious to see them until I heard it described uh, from a woman? And I quote, this woman described it this way and said, you don't understand it because you're a man. Okay. You men don't get that insecure. We tend to get antsy and scared in relationships. I know exactly what this girl is feeling. She wants to get to the wedding day and get this guy. And so she goes out to look for him. She's anxious uh, about him. Verse 3, the watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me, and I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? I mean, this is dangerous stuff, by the way. This means she's out at, late at night. I mean, she is desperate to find this guy. She finds the watchmen of the city and, like, asking them, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Verse 4, scarcely had I left them, the watchman, when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go. She has found him. She's secure. She's safe. She's found the one. She's found the one who she is bonded with emotionally, who she can trust, and who she wants to marry. And now we know Solomon is in big trouble because look at verse 4. Until I had brought him to my mother's house. Whew. And into the room of her who conceived me. It's a done deal. You bring him home to mama. Remember, daddy's not in the picture uh, in this book. So what is she saying here? Let's get married. We're both ready for this. We've gone through the courting process. Let's not delay this anymore. They go back to the house. They get permission for marriage. In verse 5, we're going to see that self-control is going to guide the rest of their courtship. Write that down next to verse 5. Number 6 here, self-control guides the way in courtship. Self-control guides the way in courtship. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Does that sound familiar? Remember that verse? Chapter 2, verse 7. Once again, Solomon takes charge here and he says, listen, even though our passions are increasing so too will our boundaries. Isn't it true, the closer you get to the wedding day, the passions are starting to rise even higher and higher and higher, and the more important boundaries become. Remember when God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7, up on the screen here, he said, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. How do you master it? You wrote it down there. Self-control. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. I don't think it exists in American dictionaries anymore. But Solomon says, listen, as much as I'd like to be like a young stag on the hills of Bethar all night long, we're going to wait. Do not awaken love until the time is right. They're going to wait. They're going to wait till their wedding, uh, which is coming up quick, and then he goes home and takes a cold shower, Right? And in verse 6, there's a transition. 
because the wedding day has come. The wedding day has come. So, and that's the last thing about courtship there. Number seven, it moves towards marriage. It's intentional. It's what it's for. It's the purpose of it. It's not two people playing a game, getting emotionally and physically and spiritually attached to one another with no purpose other than to give away a little piece of your heart. It's intentionally moving towards marriage. And if you want to know what a wedding ought to look like, we're about to see it. The main thing about this wedding, by the way, we're going to see is that it has an overwhelming sense of God's presence in it. And the reason for that is a great wedding starts with a great courtship. A great wedding starts with a great courtship. I, this is a true story. There is a store in Hollywood. I don't know if it's there anymore, but back when uh, I, I looked this up, it says, we rent wedding wing, rings. We rent wedding rings. Weddings are not meant to be a one-day event. I mean, they're a special day, but they're not meant to be a one-day event. They're meant to be the first day of a whole lifelong commitment together of a couple, right? And isn't it true that little girls are just made for weddings? I mean, these are, this is what girls dream of. I mean, when our daughter was younger, we went to a wedding, and I, I would just love watching her because she could not take her eyes off of the bride. I mean, it was just like, wow, you know? And some of you are still waiting for that day, and you want that day to be special. How does that day become special? It, it's special by doing it God's way. You know, by doing it this way, by a great courtship. Let's look at their wedding. Verse 6, what is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? That's a reference, a direct reference to when God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Do you remember how he led them? He led them through with columns of smoke. So what is this saying? He's, it's so cool. It's saying God is the one leading this couple together, right? God's presence has made itself in this ceremony manifest presence. He is here. He is blessing this wedding with his presence. Christ is the honored guest. Have you ever been to weddings like that? I mean, aren't they like the coolest, most inspiring things when you know this is a couple that has done this God's way and you just get this overwhelming sense that God is here. Christ is well pleased by this day right now. His blessing is upon this. I love being a part of weddings like that. There's a sense of God's presence, and that is happening here in this wedding because they've done it right from the beginning. Verse 6 continues, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant. Now I'm going to kind of read the rest quickly, but just listen to how this special day is described. In verses 7 and 8, there's protection. Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. Here he's coming now. He's coming down. Sixty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. Uh, I mean, again, in a modern picture, ladies, that would be like when you came down the aisle and you were the bride and there were like 60 groomsmen with AK-47s lined up, right? Wouldn't that make you feel very safe? Okay, maybe not uh, the, best, the best comparison, but the idea here is there's protection. There's protection. In verse 9, there is strength. King Solomon, it says, made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. And if you know anything about the timber of Lebanon, that's what the strongest trees there were at that time. So it's a symbol, right? It's a symbol of the kind of relationship they want to have, this solid relationship. In verse 10, there's prosperity and royalty. He made its posts, this sedan chair, 
of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric, with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. They're not driving off in some station wagon, right? They're going to ride out in style. And her friends, I love this, that's so cool, her friends even helped decorate it. That's just like what we do today, right? You, you decorate the little wedding car with the uh, whipped cream and the toilet paper and the cans and stuff. Her friends helped decorate this sedan chair. Now, these sedan chairs were actually really significant. It wasn't just a mode of transportation. Similar to how we use symbols in wedding ceremonies today, like rings. We use rings as a symbol. We use unity candles as a symbol. These sedan chairs were meant to be a symbol. They were to represent the husband's feelings for his bride, right? And so what, as we listen to the description of this sedan chair, what kind of things do you notice? Like, I want her to be my prized possession, right? I am going all out. My love for her is going to be lavish. It's going to be lavish. In verse 11, there is splendor. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. It's a great day. It's a great celebration. Solomon, they've gotten married, he's come to take away his bride, and this is the way a wedding should be, right? A day of great, great, great celebration. And that's where we close this morning. The last three weeks, right, they finally get married. But these last three weeks have been all about a couple that has spiritually oriented themselves to God. And what have we seen? We've seen that their conduct is right, that their relationship is strong and firm. They like each other. They respect each other. They desire each other. They grow together. And that's what a courtship leads to, right? A great wedding day where God is the honored guest and where his blessing flows in their relationship. And then listen, their relationship, their wedding is consummated in sex. We're going to see that next week, but it doesn't start there. That's how it ends. That's how, it, you know, that's how it's consummated. I like how one pastor says, Today, our culture has imploded and has no center moral ground on how this should look. Is that not true? We have renounced God's plan. And the result is that we are like a missile with incredible thrust but no guidance system. Rockets are just exploding and incinerating, destroying everything around them. Too many people are getting hurt. Too many people are getting hurt, doing it the way the world does it. I'll leave it up to you whether you agree with that or not. I can't convince you of that. The point of studying this book, though, is to help those who want to, those who want to, who desire to do relationships God's way, not the way the world says it, to start looking for his guidance, and he's given it to us. And it's this thing called courtship. It leads somewhere. It leads to a special day that is supposed to then culminate in a relationship that is solid, built on God's foundation. So that's the beginning of the relationship. As we close, I want to just conclude here. If you still got your booklets open, uh, five things. This is no exhaustive list. By the way, I'm not any expert in this. I love how lately today there's been a lot of books written about this whole subject of courtship. Did you know that? It's making a comeback. For example, I know one book several years ago called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. 
Another one called Passport to Purity. I mean, if these are things you want to talk to your kids, your grandkids, you want to look deeper in, there's all kinds of great resources out there right now. Talk to Pastor Lee. Talk to Pastor Brian about how to have those conversations and the kind of resources you could have. But here are five guidelines to move away from the world's idea of dating to God's idea of courting, okay? Number one, start with a clean slate. The biblical word for that is repent if you need to. Repent if you need to. In other words, sometimes there just has to be a moment when we put our foot in the sand and say, I'm not doing it the way the world does it anymore. It's only led to hurt and destruction. I am turning away from that. That's literally what repent means, turning. And I'm going to do it God's way. I'm going to look to the word for guidance and love and relationships. Friends, I needed to do this when I was in college. I told you how much I had hurt girls through this whole three-week dating process. And so I needed to come to a moment with the Lord where I needed to repent. I turned away from that idea that I, I wasn't ready to bear the weight of a person's trust. I repented of that. I turned from that, and I didn't pursue that again until I was ready. There's no magic age, by the way, when that happens, right? You just know, wow, this is serious business. This whole dating thing is serious business. For some of you, this might require breaking up. Or it might require an honest conversation, a DTR, right? Where you reorient that relationship, if you want, around Christ. Set up boundaries. Talk about foxes. Get accountability partners. That's number one. Number two, set your standards high. Before I move, though, I'm sorry, just remember, if you're feeling the weight of all that right now, what did we talk about last week? God will restore. God will restore the years the locusts have destroyed, right? He's waiting. Repent's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. God's waiting for you to embrace that so he can embrace you in his grace and you can start fresh, okay? So number two, set your standards high. And this is what I've been trying to hammer home. You don't date someone who you know won't make a good mate. I mean, Why? Why do that? Why give a little bit of peace of your heart to someone you know won't make a good husband or wife? And I guarantee you will know that early on. In fact, remember, where do we learn that? We learn that on a date. Remember what a date is. It's nothing more than an event between two mature people for observation and edification. So you should always, always, always be asking the question, does this person have the kind of characteristics kind of characteristics that are important to me and to the Lord. Remember the race analogy from last week? You better find someone who's running the same race as you, the same pace as you. Number three, and some of you students are going to choke on this one, make your parents your teammates. <laughs> Did I just say that? The difference between courtship and dating is that a couple that wants to do it this way is going to seek out God's wisdom through their parents and God's accountability through their parents, right? And you're going to discover something when you do this. Mom and dad are actually on your side. They really do want the best possible relationships for you. Amen, parents? And here's a, I had a conversation just yesterday, you know, a word to parents here. This is not in the Bible. This is just my own opinion. When it comes to all these conversations, what's the most important thing for me? What I think the most important thing for you is is to be as open as possible with them. In other words, there is no stupid question. 
There is no, like, shaming your kids. These passions, even at a young age, they're going to have questions, right, about sexuality and things like that. The key is to always keep the communication pipeline open. The moment you shut that, where are they going to find their information for that? They're going to go to their friends. And they don't know. They're not ready for that. So just be as open as you possibly can, parents. Students, remember, your parents want you to succeed. And if you don't have parents... You know, in that season, you're just like, well, that's not them. Listen, we've got a church full of people who have incredible marriages. Not that marriage is perfect. It's the hardest relationship, humanly speaking, there is. But you find one of them. You find one of them and you ask them, would you come alongside of us in our relationship right now? Make someone else your teammate in this whole thing. Number four, establish clear boundaries. Man, haven't you loved watching this couple, the way they kept themselves safe? Haven't you loved that? What'd they do? They dated out in the open. They were in public. They set up clear boundaries for their relationship. What do you need to do, friends? How are you going to stick with this? Who's going to be your accountability partner? And then number five, most importantly, include Christ in his word. Include Christ in his word. I know what the messages are today. I listen to them. There is no absolute truth. Right? We live in a day and age of moral relativism, but if you're a Christ follower, the book we're reading right now is not relative for some. It's absolute truth, and it's God's guidance for us in this area of love and relationships. So include him in all of your relationships. Include his guidance. Include his word. Make Christ the third member of any relationship you enter into. And believe, again, this is God's heart for you. Believe. God really does want the best for you and your relationships, right? He really does want you to experience the best possible marriage. So that's it. Five ways to move from attraction to dating to courtship to marriage. Starting next week, this couple will actually be married now, and we start off with a doozy. So uh, you may or may not want to be here, right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom in your word. We thank you for the guidance it offers in this area of love and relationships. And whether uh, we find ourselves uh, in a season of not being married and we want to be married or we're going to get married one day or whether we're still married, everything we've heard still today applies to us. If we're married, let us be people who never stop dating and courting our spouse to treat them the way that these two have treated each other throughout the beginning of their relationship, to become the types of person that you intend us to become as men and women, as husbands and as wives. And I do, though, want to pray a special prayer over those who are still single and seeking that. I know there are also those who are single and who are not seeking that. Lord, we pray for them, that you'll continue to equip and build them. But for those who are single and are seeking this relationship, God, we pray that they would be encouraged by you today. That they would seek you as the source and guide of their life. We pray as the body of Christ over them and for them. Let us be examples to them of what godly relationships really can look like, God. Help us to be people who are guided by your word. And we pray uh, that you'll give us the grace and power and strength we need to see this through. God, we ask that you will help the marriages and the engagements and even the beginnings of relationships in this church to flourish. 
to flourish in a way that you've designed them to flourish. We thank you. You want the best for us in all things. And we praise you in Jesus' great name. Amen.